Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Mark! Uh! Ken! Eddie's. Welcome to Fearless. The show that strikes fear into the wokeity wokes all over the world. Hey man, I'm blessed to be here. I'm your thrill sergeant, and my name is Uncle Jimmy. And him, he's hungrier than a Hebrew slave. And his name is Jason Whitlock. <laughs> Speaking of Hebrew slaves, it's Wednesday Harmony, or as I've told you before, as the heathens call it, hump day. Can we roll that tape real quick, please? Ow! Again, hey. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. Uh, let's get this fire started. There it is. <laughs> you heard it out of his own jaws. <laughs> As I said, it's Wednesday and Pastor Anthony's here today. And hopefully he can come in here and lay his hands on our heathenistic backslider of a host with a benevolent heart, of course. Listen, remember yesterday, the Jim Jones French kiss slop fest with his mama segment we had yesterday? Remember? Now listen, it was bad enough that Jason brought that up with Shamika, but you know what? This dude is gonna bring it back up again today with the pastor. And quite frankly, Jason, hey man, you really didn't know, need to go get a pastor to bring that back up, okay? I could have told you straight up. I don't know where it's at, but I can guarantee you the Bible clearly states that thou shalt not tongue kiss thy mama in the mouth. I can guarantee you that there's no quicker way to make it to the gates of hell. Well, other than maybe creating a deadly virus in a Wuhan lab and releasing it on people. <coughs> Dr. Fauci. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> before we get into Harmony, we gotta go talk to my guy, L.A. He's out in L.A. and I'm talking about LeVar Arrington. And now for those of you that don't know, you don't follow him on the Instagram or the Twitter. Hey man, LeVar Arrington kinda shot his wad a little prematurely regarding his College Hall of Fame induction announcement. But nonetheless, LeVar, I have to tell you, is one of my favorite people that I've ever met at Fox. Despite the fact that he ain't never had me on his little podcast. Anyway, hey man, we got my guy, Stephen A. Kim. He's gonna be here to sort out all of this bullarky about the Bruce Arians, and it's a travesty comment. Okay, hey, and by the way, Steve, Jason heard me make that Squid Game comment, okay, last week. And now the big guy wants to do a remake of the movie himself, and he's gonna do it just for fat people. It's gonna be called The Skid Games. <laughs> Lord have mercy. So hey man, it's that time y'all, let's do it. Let's hit the likes. <laughs> let's hit the subscribes. Let's do the five star dilly if you feel me, all right? Go out and perch the merch. Put some swag in your bag. And when you do, <laughs> it'll be the best night you ever had. So come on, y'all. Let's release the doves. Let's release the hounds. And it's time for me to bring out the man who really wants to be baptized. The only reason he can't is because of one word. <laughs> Buoyancy. Ladies and gentlemen, my guy, Jason Whitlock.
great job, uh, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, you're going to love uh, our next guest and the way we're going to open today's show. Not with a fire starter, but with someone who had a fire college football career and just had it punctuated by being named to the College Football Hall of Fame. Friend of mine, friend of the show, friend of Uncle Jimmy's, uh, LeVar Arrington. LeVar lives out in Los Angeles, and we're going to roll out to L.A. and bring LeVar in and talk about uh, this tremendous honor that uh, he kind of tipped everybody off early on. Uh, LeVar, I know you've taken a little flack for uh, preempting the official announcement, but when I read about you doing that and accidentally breaking the news before it was actually officially announced, it hit me different because it just speaks to how honored and how thrilled and how important this distinction was for you. You take a lot of pride in Penn State. You take a lot of pride in uh, your college football career. And so I just like, I'm not sure if anybody has ever been inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame that it means more to than you. It means a lot with, I, 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 I kind of blanked out when I saw it, it you know, when, <laughs> When I went to the door, my son had just got in from from school um, for the holidays and I'm letting him in the door. I'm hugging him and I pick the box up and he goes and walks to take his stuff to the room. I'm sitting down. I open the box. And first off, I don't get boxes. You know, Trish gets all the boxes. So that was that threw me off to begin with that. I had a box. I got I received mail. But then when I opened it up. And I saw the ball and the ball said, said uh, Hall of Fame on it. I think everything else just kind of became a blur. It became a blur. I, just honestly speaking, I read, I ended up reading the paper, but I didn't see, I didn't really see anything other than it just said National Football Foundation uh, Class of 2022 Hall of Fame inductee. I, I just, that was really all I saw. So it does mean a lot to me, though. You you know how much I love Penn State, and I, and I love my college career and love my teammates and love that time of my life, greatest time of my life, and to have it culminated with this taking place. Uh, man, I'm still, I'm still floating on cloud nine right now. And so I saw your the statement you put out once it was officially announced, and, and mm -hmm. the thing I know about you from knowing you personally is – you do take a lot of pride in the guys you played with and behind the scenes you talk about. I think I've, I've heard you say like, well, you know, Brandon Short, you know, he may have been uh, better than me. But, <laughs> you know, because you take a lot of pride in the guys you played with and you gave them a lot of credit and feel like you going in is basically that group of defenders that you played with all going into the Hall of Fame. 100%. If I don't have if I don't have the captain with me, I don't have the type of career that that I had while I was there. If I don't have six with me, I don't have the type of career that I had. Six being Courtney Brown, uh, that's what we nicknamed him, uh, or RoboCop. Uh, B Short was was Cap. I called him Cap Captain. Uh, just a leader, consummate leader. Uh, one that kept kept me motivated, kept us focused as as a unit uh 
we communicated so well. It was just a great group. Mac Morrison, 31, the other linebacker that was out there, uh, Thumper, uh, did the dirty work so that I was able to, to do what I did best, which was track the ball. Uh, it's just you name it. You name it. From Brad Schioli to Bob Jones to Brad Jones to Fernando to, to Flight David Fleischauer, Amani Bell, Ascari Adams, Derek Fox, David Macklin, James Boyd, Anthony King. If it isn't for all of them, if it isn't for our unit and how close we were and the things that we did, I don't I don't have the type of career at the college level that I was able to have. So it definitely is an award for all of us. Tell me this, and, and I don't want you to be modest here. I want you to be honest. You're not surprised by this induction, are you? It, it you know, based on your college career, it, it, it only makes sense, correct? I'm I'm still the only true sophomore to win defensive player of the year in the Big Ten. Still only one to this day. I could continue on and keep giving you, well, let's see, two times uh, a unanimous uh, All-American in a three-year career. Uh, I'm the first I'm the first Buckus Award winner uh, for for the school. Uh, I'm the first Chuck Benaric award winner for the school that is known as linebacker U. So to win the Buckets Award, which is the best linebacker in, in, in the country, to win the Benaric, which is the best defender in the country, uh, I would say I, I achieved at, at more than a high enough level to, to have gained entry into those, those hollow grounds. Of, of the College Hall of Fame. Do you have any regrets at all about leaving with one more year of eligibility left? I mean, because, and again, maybe you're in the conversation for best college defensive player of all time, but maybe if you had played one more year, it wouldn't even be a debate. So I gave you all those names, right? They all graduated. <laughs> they were all graduate. Courtney Brown leaving. David Macklin leaving. Derek Fox leaving. Brandon Short, Courtney uh, leaving. So I would have I would have went into my senior season with an entirely different defensive uh, defensive group. And and while I, I thought very highly of, of the guys that I played with, uh, outside of the starters, that would have been starting over in, in a year coming off of being being the Benaric player of the year and being the Buckets winner. If I would have had the type of year that I had the year before, then then it makes sense. But I think that it was it was way too much of a risk to come back and and my whole defensive front graduated especially Courtney, like you got to keep in mind, I was dealing with more often than not, I was dealing with single, single blocks or no, no blocking scheme at all. Just getting to the ball because they were using three and four dudes to block Courtney. They were using two to block Brandon. They were using a lot of guys up to block the other players on the field. 
I, I don't think I would have had that my senior year. So while I would say the the humanistic side with looking back on my life now, I would have I would have stayed for my senior year because I shouldn't have been in a rush to go into the real world and, and have to do business. Uh, I was chasing the dream of, of being a professional football player and being able to provide for myself and my family when I really should have been enjoying being a college student at some point in, in my life. And I, maybe if that, there's one regret, I don't know that I don't know that I ever stopped to enjoy being a college student not just a college athlete. And, and that would be my, my epiphany all these years later. So one thing I don't think in my mind can be debated, the LeVar Leap the, the, is probably the most memorable uh, play for, on a defensive side of the ball in, in college football, particularly the last 30 years. I think there's another candidate with Jadavian Clowney's hit on the Michigan running back. Uh, Roy Williams made a, 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 a nice play uh, in the Oklahoma-Texas game or whatever, but none of them, I, I, does, does Jadavian Clowney's hit, does it have a nickname? The LeVar Leap, you can just say that, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. It's, it, it was on, I believe, on fourth down. And I mean, that highlight is is mind blowing, but it's actually funny having talked to you uh, personally, the LeVar Leap was actually kind of a, a, a weight on your shoulder uh, having to live up to that hit. Every, every play. I made three Pro Bowls with, I, I was an all pro. In, in the National Football League with, uh, you know, I, I didn't I didn't have eight, eight Pro Bowl selections and and four or five first team all pros for my my NFL career. But I was a first a first pick first choice for for a Pro Bowl three times straight, which is that's difficult to do. But a lot of people consider me to be a bust because I didn't play at the level of of a LeVar Leap every single play. So people, it's funny because people will criticize me for being undisciplined, being a freelancer. I didn't play within the, the parameters of the scheme and different things like that. Of course I did. I just stretched the envelope. I stretched the boundaries because of how much I understood the game. And, and those plays don't happen all the time. They happen here and there. Like this play we're looking at right here, I believe this to be my most athletic play that I've ever I ever made. I blocked a field goal with my numbers, and and that's really studying. I, I would challenge anyone to go out there and try to block a field goal with your chest. You actually time it up well enough where your athleticism can actually take place during the course of the play. You know, for me. I just I just always wanted to put my best foot forward and I felt like I did but in a lot of lot of cases it wasn't enough. So now if I don't do a Lavar leap every play where where you're like okay this is what we've come to expect from Lavar 
then it's not good enough. If if I don't pick a ball off and go high stepping in into the end zone, that's not the level of 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 accepting um, me playing well. So it was almost like a burden, uh, like you said. But but in many ways, it, you know, it, it it had its it had its moments. I had my moments, and and I wouldn't. I don't have any regrets towards it. It got you on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That 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 it had to feel good. It. <laughs> it definitely did. Hey, and more than one time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's going to segue me into uh, Joe Paterno, and yeah, you you had some in your statement about going into the Hall of Fame. You credited Joe. You thanked Joe, but I know that you and Joe had a complicated relationship uh, when you were at Penn State and maybe even post uh, playing days at Penn State. Walk us through your relationship with Joe Paterno, how it evolved from a player to a former player, and then how you feel about Joe now that he's passed away and time has passed. Yeah, we did have a complex relationship. I felt like I felt like Joe was against me just based off of me being me. And I never could understand that because I've always been me. So if you're recruiting me and you want me to come to your school and I've met you and we've talked and I felt so highly about Penn State and Coach Paterno that I committed early and never took a, an official visit to another school. Never, never thought about backing out on my commitment. I, I got a tattoo of the Nittany line on my arm my, at the end of my junior year. So there was a lot of, of, to me, a lot of commitment early on that showed my buy-in to, to him as a coach and to the school. And once I got there, it was like, who I was bothered him. And, and, and I think what it was is I have a strong family unit. My mother and my father taught me to live in my truth and to be brave and be unapologetic about who I am. God is on my side and anything that, that comes against me that isn't of him is not going to prosper against me. And I always took, I always took that as literal as possible. So I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm not going to fabricate the truth. I'm going to be brutally honest and I'm going to be who I am. And in some cases, that's great. And in some cases, it's not so great. Uh, I don't think Joe liked that I was, I was not afraid to say what the truth was if I was asked a question. I didn't seek attention with I've never been one to seek attention, but if you're in my space, I I am who I am. And, and a lot of people feel as though, you know, even you and I have had our moments, right? With the way my personality is, I'm, I'm an outgoing person and, and the way I, I, but, but I don't, I don't pull no punches. So every once in a while it could get under your skin or it could bother you. And, and Joe was bothered. And, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Uh, but as, as time got, you know, wore on, 
I started understanding more from his perspective and his angle a lot of why he didn't like it. Uh, when you bring that, when you bring the type of personality I bring, it can bring good and bad, as I mentioned, and that can play a part in how a game plays out, a game plan for a game, uh, how they approach me in the game. There's a lot of things that can take place from a coach's perspective as to why you don't want players um, being so forthright or forthcoming and candid about you know what it is that's going on so as we got older we 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 came together at one point in time and we we made amends and i can honestly say um, i'm happy that that i didn't have to look at him and in his death and appreciate him in his death wishing that i had an opportunity to let him know how much i appreciated him while he was living and we did have one of those moments and he let me know how much he appreciated me and the value of that still sticks with me to this day at a very very high level so part of you know our conversation in in my view because I, I remember i went back and reread one of the Sports Illustrated stories about you, and and I felt like or feel like Paterno has this vision of the Penn State program, and there's no names on the back of the jerseys. The uniforms are very vanilla. Penn State is always the focus, and I think he's fearful, or he was fearful, of any player that who's personality, fame, attention, whatever, became bigger than the program. And, and to me, it, it's like, hey man, uh, there's certain guys that are a perfect fit for the old school, Miami, the U, and that's not Penn State's program. Go play at the U if, if you wanna be one of those. And I'm not knocking the U because Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Michael Irvin, I love those guys. I mean, really authentically love them, think they're great, and, and get the U, but the U has a different personality than Penn State. And so I, I was just wondering, did you ever think like, and you said you committed to Penn State, didn't take any other official visits, but perhaps for your personality, and just quite frankly, your level of talent, because you're one of the most unique to at six foot two, six foot three, with your athleticism and and your heart for the game. Because there's a lot of guys with uh, your body, your physical gifts, their personality is more Jane than Tarzan. You actually got the right aggressive personality for all your talent. And and anyway, I was just wondering if you ever thought like I would have been a better fit at a different program than the vanilla Penn State program. I would have been I would have been dope in any program. If I would have went to Miami, it would have been <laughs> it would have been it would have been curtains at Miami. If I would have went to Florida State, it would have been curtains at Florida State. You know, you got to keep in mind coming out of high school, I was the player of the year. I was the parade player of the year. 
I was I was I was the player of the year where you were from, where anybody else was from. That was the, the <laughs> distinction that I had took while I was in high school. And that was because I took pride in playing the game at a high level. It's interesting that you asked the question. I was talking to my high school coach yesterday. We had a great conversation. My high school coach is more like like Joe Paterno than he is, you know, any of those coaches that, you know, would have been out there. Now, if I would have went to Florida State, that's no different than a Joe Paterno. Um, So to me, when I chose Penn State, it was because the structure of of football, the the backbone and and the, the foundation of what I became as a football player was based off of the principles and the values of what Penn State represented. And and so that was why it was a natural pick. I related to that coaching staff so well. It wasn't it wasn't really a whole lot that I needed answered. You know, I became very close with guys like Kajana Carter and OJ McDuffie and uh, T- uh, Terry Killens and 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 Takio uh, Tayoga. Excuse me, Tayoga Jackson. I got to know so many awesome dudes while I was in that that process that lived nearby that it just it just felt right to me. It didn't feel foreign until I got there. Then once I got there and it was almost like it's like, Joe, do you want me to treat you like you're my dad or do you want me to treat you like my coach? Because right now I'm a tad bit perplexed as to what our dynamic is. I got a dad at home. He served this country. He, he serves his community to this day as, as an ordained minister. My dad is a great man. I don't need you to be a father figure to me. I need you to be a guide and a coach. That's what I need. And, and I think that that was kind of, we had just fundamental philosophical differences even though i was young and he he's he went off on on record saying lavar thinks he knows too much and if lavar wants the keys to the car here he's going to have to do it my way i can remember the quotes that he was giving you know he felt like my way was was a revolutionist style of doing things and he said in that very article that you probably read in sports illustrated if lavar wants to be a revolutionist lavar be a revolutionist in exile now i'm going into my last year of school perceivably my junior season and i'm the the highest rated football player in the country in college and I had my head coach instead of saying LeVar should be winning the Heisman or LeVar should be this or LeVar should be that. He's he's not allowing me to go to the the Playboy All-American, right? The 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 photo shoot because it's good Playboy call. All-American. Good call. That was a very good call. I would have okay. made that same decision. Yeah, okay. good, good I'm call not able there. To do, I'm not <laughs> able to do that. I'm not I'm not able to do interviews. I'm I'm like everything was shut off my last year like things were shut down for a while and it's it, like to me it was like we're here now like what like it was almost like a an all-out campaign to boost courtney and diminish me and i never understood it i never understood it as as things evolve i've always been 
what I believe to be the best teammate that you could possibly have. I'll give you the shirt off my back. I'll give you the shoes off my feet. And I still, to this day, will am that same type of way. And and whatever it is you need from me, support wise or 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 help wise, I'm always be available. I never thought I was too good. I never, you know, took caution and 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 just dismissed it. I always was present, and I always wanted to show my coaches and my teammates that that's who I was and that's who I wanted to be um, to my teammates. But I don't know. I just. The way I was, the attention that I got and the, the, the reception that I would always receive from the Penn State community was so intense. I just think that, you know, it rubbed Joe the wrong way. Now, LeVar, I believe in that Sports Illustrated article, you insinuated uh, they couldn't win a national championship the way Joe Paterno was going about it. And you wondering why he was a little upset? <laughs> hey, hey, what what does that cover say, Whitlock, on, on the left side underneath my name? I can't see it. You got to tell it me. It says number one. Fires up number one Penn State. Number one. We were rated number one by, by Sports Illustrated. You know what we ended up ranked that year? Ended? I don't know. I don't even remember what we ended up. I don't even know that we ended up being ranked at the end of the year with with with, with a team with a future number one overall draft pick and number two overall draft pick in college. And we lost three games that year. Three. So was I lying? Like, you could get upset that I said it. But I sit. I, I did not. I did not offer that information unsolicited. I did not offer it. I didn't go into the interview and say, "I want to make sure I make this clear in this interview that we won't win anything because Joe isn't handling things the way that he needs to handle them." I didn't do that. They asked me, "Will we win a national championship?" And I said, "No, we won't." Because we don't play our best players. We don't play our best players. Like, that's that's just, that was reality. I, I 100% shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it, Wit. But they asked me the question, and I told them the truth. I didn't lie. I told the truth. We won't win it because our best players, some of our best players, are on the sidelines. They're not on the field. And I know what that felt like because there was a point in time where I was better than the guy that was in front of me and I was on the sideline. The one thing that I regret about those that interview in particular and the things that I said, my truth was my truth. And I respected myself for being truthful, but I didn't take into consideration the rite of passage. I thought it was about winning and winning was what's most important. Whereas Joe had a way of doing things and it was earn your keep, earn your respect, earn the trust and, and that you will be honored. There'll be an honor connected to you doing it the way that he structured it to be done. And while I may not agree with that fully, 
Because if you're going to bring guys there that are five-star, four-star guys, they should have the opportunity to challenge for the spot that they were recruited for. But ultimately, that love and respect that I have for the guys that were in front of me when, when I came there is very high. And, and I, would, I would be remiss if I felt like it was okay to take Aaron Collins's job. Like, doesn't make sense now. It, it doesn't compute the right way now. And it was a time to learn. I came in and I learned so much from him and Matt Rule that going into my sophomore year, I dominated. And I dominated because I was able to watch and learn and take notes and diagnose film even better than what I was taught in high school. So there was a process. And I, I, I admit, I, I, I regret some of the things that I said in truth and in just. It just wasn't wise to say what it was that I was saying because there was a bigger picture in some regards on the other side of it. So that was just immaturity. It was immaturity. And so let me tell you what's going to happen to you. Let me predict the future uh, because I, you and Trish got them four kids at home. And so I just want you to know what, what you've just put into the air. What's going to happen to you over the next couple, two or three years, one of them daughters, sons that you're raising, they're going to disagree with your approach to some certain things, and they're going to put it in the air. And you're going, you're going to be very frustrated the same way that Joe Paterno was frustrated, because you're going to look at them and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa it's whoa. already happening. It's already happening. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's already happening. Look how great I am. Look how great I am. <laughs> it's already happening. I'm as gray as the gray in my shirt. You know what I mean? Look, I follow your IG. You got some sleepless nights ahead of you, bro. I do. Uh, oh, they're beautiful. I think your oldest daughter, your oldest daughter is a knock, is a straight from, <laughs> she looks like Trish. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you, does the one younger. You got all, all of them. All of them. It's, yeah, it's a God's humor, you know? <laughs> it couldn't happen to a better person. Somebody that's going to have to worry about their daughters moving around. Couldn't happen to a better person, you know? <laughs> hey, man, uh, I, I just want to touch on this briefly because, I, again, I, I don't want to do anything to diminish uh, going into the College Football Hall of Fame, but, but clearly you had Pro Football Hall of Fame talent and, and, and things, injury situations, uh, just didn't go your way at the professional level. And, and I know from, you know, talking to you and being a, such a good friend that having that kind of talent and having the kind of start you had to your NFL career, it, 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 it's, it is a, a pebble in your shoe it that you didn't me. get to fulfill. Yeah, didn't get to fulfill your whole football career the way you wanted to. It does, but I have two sons, and I have multi multitudes of, of young young men. I mean, look at what Mike is doing right now. Um, I give all of me to all of them, and 
my my payoff for coming up short is that there is still room for somebody that I mentor and that I love on to outdo what I did. And and so I don't I don't it bothers me. It bothers me when I see guys that I look at as like, man, if you think about it, Tom Brady was in in my draft. I wasn't in Tom Brady's draft until now. Now it's everybody was in Tom Brady's draft, right? But he was in my draft. He was waiting around fishing and hanging out and twiddling his thumbs and looking at the wall and what's my life going to be? I was already out of New York and in D.C. with my number and everything. And, you know, things happened fast, and but they happened the way they were supposed to happen. And I'm not I don't waste time trying to figure out why my NFL career didn't go the way that I wanted it to go or the way it went at every other level that I played at. I do know that the coincidence is that I didn't choose that team. I chose my little league team. I chose my high school team. I chose my college team. I ain't choose my pro team. So all I could do is go out there and play and do what it is that I could do and ultimately serve my community. And that's what I did. And people in that community still bang with me. I still bang with them. And and the love that I have from the Washington football fan base is the love that I give back. It's reciprocated. And I wish I could have had a Hall of Fame career with them, but it didn't happen that way. But I gave my all while I had the opportunity to do it. All right. Last question. I'm going to let you get out of here. You, I've been listening to you talk about Micah Parsons for several years, not just last year, not just this year. You saw this coming, the, the Cowboys linebacker, in the discussion for Defensive Player of the Year as a rookie, huge impact on the Cowboys. Uh, I'm going to ask you a very difficult question. Uh, better football player, Micah Parsons or LeVar Arrington? I'm I'm Lawrence Fishburne. I'm I'm um I'm Morpheus. Michael Parsons is Neo. He's he's Keanu Reeves. He he's the one. Got to. If he stays if he stays healthy, he he will I mean he's already drawing comparisons to Lawrence Taylor. I drew comparisons to Lawrence Taylor all the way up until my rookie year. <laughs> he's drawing comparisons <laughs> post rookie post-rookie season, um, ending, ending up on, uh, you know, if, if T.J. Watt doesn't tie the sack record, we're talking about Micah Parsons getting defensive player of the year as a rookie, which was only done by Lawrence Taylor. He's out of the gates, and he's off to a good start. His, his understanding and his ability, along with his knowledge and wisdom um, at this, this stage, he should be better than me. Because physically speaking, a lot of our tools are the same. But mentally speaking, the things that he has in his toolbox are much more developed and much further along because he's listened. Uh, you know, all the things that I have put in front of him and have discussed with him, he listens. He ta- he's a sponge. He takes it in. He's humble. And, and he's relentless in how he approaches. He wants to be the best. He doesn't want to just be better than me. He wants to be better than everybody. And, and so to me, where he's at right now currently, um, to, to go on the, the playoff stage as, as a rookie and then getting some of the rookie accolades that he's, he's, he's going to rack up, 
uh, his trajectory is much higher than mine. Yeah, Micah Parsons is somebody that would have listened to Joe Paterno, and and that's I think probably the difference between you, you and him. There. Is it? I is, saw uh, what you did there. <laughs> I saw what you did. There. All right, uh, hey, tell hey, Trish well, I'll hello. Tell I tell you what, hey, Whit, Joe Paterno has the 26th member of the inducted class of 2022 uh, Hall of Fame uh, linebacker by the name of LeVar Arrington. So our teamwork made the dream work, at least at the college level. How about that? <laughs> Thank, I appreciate it. I'm going to come out December 6th and, yes. and celebrate with you and your family. Looking forward it. to it. And and I expect you to now start campaigning for me as a Ball yes. State great to join 100%. the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. Yeah. Let's yeah, get it done. <laughs> Let's get it done. All right. That's LeVar Arrington uh, or LeVarrington, as uh, Uncle Jimmy likes to call him. All right. Going online without ExpressVPN is like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while using the restroom. Most of the time, it's probably fine, but you never truly know who you're trusting. What if they're a, what if they're kidnapped serial killer? Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, etc., your own online data is not secure. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. That's why you need to be using ExpressVPN. Today, ExpressVPN creates a safe, secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data, and with their app, it's very easy to use. Just activate it, and you are protected on your phone, laptop, tablets, and more, so you can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash fearless. That's expressvpn.com slash fearless, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash fearless. You can get an extra three months free expressvpn.com slash fearless all right perfect segue for from my conversation about lavar with lavar arrington about joining the college football hall of fame we're gonna go out to la and bring in the korean cosell who is the biggest college football fan on the show and college football expert. And so Steve can help us uh, decide because, you know, I think LeVar obviously thinks that LeVar Leap is the greatest defensive player in college football history, most memorable. Uh, and I tend to agree, but Hadley, one of our producers, brought up this morning the Jadavian Clowney hit. Uh, which is very, very memorable on the Michigan running back. And then uh, Roy Williams made a really incredible play in the Oklahoma-Texas game that I think a lot of people uh, still remember. Uh, Steve, you're the expert here. What's the most memorable college defensive play? Oh, contraire, mon frere. You know what? I will go with the third play for one reason. The Roy Williams hit on Chris Sims in the Red River shootout, I still call it that, to me, that won the game. I recall that game was in the 2001 season. 
Oklahoma was the defending national champion. Texas was also a top 10 team. That game had a lot at stake. And in a game where one or two plays could swing it as neither offense really got going, Roy Williams causing the sack, deflection, Teddy Lehman, I don't know if that was ruled a fumble or an interception, to walk it in, that one play won the game. Now, could you make an argument that the other two plays were splashier, more violent, more athletic? Yes, but in terms of impact in a meaningful rivalry game, got to get it up to the Oklahoma Sooners. Okay, but do you honestly think if people are sitting at a sports bar and they're talking about uh, greatest defensive plays, the LeVar Leap, the other two don't even have nicknames. It's The LeVar Leap put this guy on the cover of sports. They should put him in the Heisman Trophy race. I get that one play won the game, but in terms of memorable, it's got to be the LeVar Leap. Oh, yeah? Go to Big 12 country and try to make that argument. Let, let me quote the great Herman Edwards. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win. That won the game. It was a top 10 matchup. Now, that LeVar Leap came against, I believe, Illinois, and Kirk Kittner was the quarterback as Ron Turner was building that program. He took a gamble on a short yardage play. It's a great play. And nowadays, they put it on T-shirts and posters, and LeVar can make some NIL money with it. But it didn't necessarily win the game. I don't know. I'm old school. I actually believe that the impact of the play and the meaningfulness of the game matters. That's why I'm going with Roy Williams. All right. I, I said you were the expert. I'm going to let you be the expert. I, I respectfully uh, disagree, but you've made a good point. All right. So you caught me with my pants down yesterday. Oh. You weren't on the show. Uh, but I came out with my top 20 NFL coaches mm. of the last mm. 50 years, and I made a glaring, oh. maybe even two, but a glaring <sighs> oversight leaving Jimmy Johnson off my list. That, that was bad on my part. Jason, I'm at the office watching the show, and I, I, I already have a natural squint, but when that fine graphic was put up, I started looking on What's going on? Is it chronological? Is it alphabetical? Let me go to You didn't have the great Jimmy S. Johnson, four-star general of the gridiron, who put on the greatest concurrent run from college to pro that'll never be matched. I'll say that right now. If you look at his NFL run specifically, it was relatively short, and maybe that's why you forgot about it, Jay. And he wasn't all that old when he retired after the 1999 season. But take a look at what he did in nine seasons. He went to the playoffs six times, won a couple of Super Bowls, put a team together where Barry Switzer for the next two years could have won some more Super Bowls. They won it in 95 without him. Then he goes to the Dolphins, and it really didn't work out because I thought Dan Marino was kind of in the way, and he couldn't build the team that he wanted to. But he still made the playoffs three out of four times. And again, I don't know if this really enters the discussion, but Jimmy Johnson's ability for player personnel and drafting is incredible because even in Miami, forget the Herschel Walker trade and all the great players he had in Dallas, he still drafted guys like Zach Thomas, uh, Sam Madison, Patrick Sertain. I, I believe Jason Taylor might have been one of his guys. So I just think, again, we all make mistakes, Jay. I mean, that's a big one. That's a pretty big one. But Jimmy Johnson belongs on that list. 
Certainly does. And has a good case to be in the top 10, maybe, yes. on that list. Certainly top 15. It's not like he was in a battle for 17, 18, 19. I'm going to tell you the other name that, that Hadley pointed out to me between puffs of a cigarette. Uh, Tom Coughlin. Mm. Uh Yes. Went, you know, has a great run with the Jacksonville Jaguars when they're an expansion team. Wins two Super Bowls with the New York Giants. I, I, I have to say Coughlin belongs on my list as well. If you're going to do a list like that and you have coaches that have not won the Super Bowl who are still outstanding coaches, to leave out a guy with two uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very strong argument to go against. Here's the thing that I really enjoyed about Coughlin. I, I first remembered him as the coach at Boston College. That was his first head coaching job. In 1991, with the really a rebuilding program, they nearly beat number one Miami the, the week after wide right one. I remember thinking, that guy knows what he's doing. Goes to Jacksonville. Franchise was expansion in 95. By 96, they're, I believe, in the AFC championship game. They upset a great Denver Bronco team in Mile High State in one of the most stunning upsets of the decade. From 96, 97, 98, 99, Jacksonville was an elite team, made some deep playoff runs, but could never go over the hump. Now you look at it with the New York Giants. Uh, there's a generation of players led by Michael Strahan. Not only have Super Bowl rings, but everything they do in life, they now show up at least 10 minutes early. That's what a great coach does. They win games, they build championship rosters, and they teach life lessons. All right, so if those two guys got to come off, who are my two weakest choices? Uh, can, let me see that. Let me see that graphic again, because like, I I think oh, there's a lot of great coaches. Like I respect guys. Let me see. I, I think oh, yeah, Bruce Gruden? Arians has to come off. Who? How about Gruden? Why that does that? John Gruden had one great year in 2002. The rest of his oh, he built the Oakland Raiders. He built the Raiders into a team that went to a Super Bowl as soon as he left. To me, Bruce Arians. I'm not taking John Harbaugh. Well, how about Sean Payton? Actually, there only been the one Super Bowl. Yeah, there's a bunch of guys I could take off. There's a bunch of guys. And I like Payton, but here's the issue. They've lost a lot of home playoff games, specifically at the very tail end of the Drew Brees era where you're thinking one more Super Bowl and both of these legacies are so heightened. You know what? Couldn't get the job done. So maybe those are the guys that I look at. So, you know, this it, the, it appears to be a bad look for me on this with these two glaring oversights. But, it is. you know, it... I, how about Hadley? How does how does Hadley not catch this and send me <laughs> off to a better direction? I mean, well, well now wait a minute. I, wait a minute. The show is yeah. called Fearless with Jason Whitlock. The show's not called Fearless with Jason Whitlock, John Hadley, Uncle Jimmy, uh, and you know Delano Squires and Shamika Michelle. Come on, all right. You you're you're like the yeah. quarterback. When things go well. Things go well. Like, by the way, congratulations on 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. You get the credit for that. That's you. The 100K, that's you. Leave out Jimmy S. Johnson. I almost thought I was this close to giving you a down vote uh, on YouTube. I would have never done it, but I said, you know what? I'm a team player. I'm going to be okay. The algorithms don't want to disrupt them. You know. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so I blew it there. Uh, all right, let's move on to a conversation I wanted to have on Monday. We'll have it t- here today on Tuesday. NFL Coach of the Year 2021. Uh, Mike Vrabel's a candidate. Bill Belichick could be, I guess. Uh, what's it? Nick Sirianni, the yeah. coach of the Eagles. Uh, Rich Basakia, Raiders, and perhaps Matt LaFleur. Uh, to me, I think it's a no-brainer. It's the Las Vegas Raiders coach. Look, Richie B is the feel-good story of the year. But the best job of pure coaching, I think, is done by Vrabel. I know you're not a believer in the Titans, but that right there strengthens my argument. When you lose the 22-wheeler, the Bama Slamma, who may be one of the top five players in the game, and Derrick Henry, only played about eight, nine games, and you're thinking, oh, it's going to fall off now with Ryan training wheels at quarterback. Guess what? Still led them to a number one seed. And when I watch a Vrabel coach team, they just look and fit and act like the personality of their coach. They are hard-nosed, and they are physical. And to do this without an elite quarterback who's so reliant on setting up favorable down and distance with the running game and then Julio Jones who was brought in to be a very important complimentary piece he missed a significant amount of time as did A.J. Brown to lead that team to the number one seed you got to give it up to Brable that's the guy it's a good argument I don't have any problem with Brable I just don't like the Titans this year because of the quarterback (laughs) I'm gonna tell you I'm gonna tell you who's got a sneaky case Someone that will never get any credit uh, for the year that he just had, but deserves a ton of it. When you're Sean Payton and you lose your quarterback, yeah, first second week of the season, and somehow I still they finish with a winning record just outside of the playoffs. I, I think Sean Payton did a remarkable job. Again, let me make my case for Richie B over in the Raiders. Let me stay on on point here. Uh, look. From Gruden getting fired for no reason, uh, Henry Ruggs uh, losing him to you know a DUI and that that tragedy, his being drunk and killing somebody, yeah. uh, and for the Raiders to survive and and to end up winning ten games, and this guy was a special teams coach, and and held that thing together. He and Derek Carr held that thing together. I, I, I look. If Brable wins, I won't have a problem with. They got the best record. They did lose Derrick Henry, but I love the job that the guy in Las Vegas did. He's earned that head coaching job. I'm sure they'll strip the interim tag off of it, off of him. Uh, let me tell you a guy who's not in this conversation by anybody, but perhaps has the record uh, is Bruce Arians. Uh, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they went through some injury problems like everybody does. Uh, but, but Bruce Arians has done something here, I think, very, very classless. Earlier this week, listen to his comments and the way he argued that Tom Brady should be the MVP of the National Football League. I think if, if he doesn't get it, it's a travesty. I mean, most completions ever, 5,000 yards, touchdowns, the whole, the whole nine yards. I mean, I mean, to me, it's not even a, it's not even a close race. Hmm. A travesty. If Tom Brady doesn't win the MVP, it's not even a close race. Those are 
major shots at Aaron Rodgers, and I think those shots he's taking are COVID-related because uh, Bruce Arians is part of the woke mafia and part of the, the Democratic machine, and he loved bragging about how all the Bucks players, 52 or 53 players are vaccinated or whatever. This to me is straight off the I hate Aaron Rodgers uh, tree, and it, it's irresponsible, it's stupid. It's, he can make a case for Tom Brady, but a travesty if he doesn't win it, given the year that Aaron Rodgers just had, I, I, I think, I, and that it's not even close. I think to say that is a direct shot at Aaron Rodgers. Am I making it up? Am I hearing things? I think there's validity to it, but I, you know what's that old song? I'm sure it's popular in Nashville, Stand By Your Man, and that's what he's doing. He is trying to campaign that, hey, my guy, Tom Brady, the greatest of all time, should not be overlooked. But I don't think anyone played better than Aaron Rodgers. And look, Bruce Arians, we know his leanings, which is fine. But I expect head coaches to go out there and campaign for their players afterwards. The regular season is over. These things are important to the individual players, whether they do not uh, care what they say publicly or not, but it's tied into financial incentives. I'm Here's what I think. Do I think it's a shot at Aaron Rodgers? To a certain degree, yes. But I also think that Bruce Arians wants to be good in the locker room. and That unlike Bill Belichick, who understood that, hey, the team before anybody – Bruce says, wait a minute, I got a star player. I actually have a star system. I want to make sure that Tom Brady feels respected and appreciated. I took it more as that. Not that much of a shot at Aaron Rodgers, to be honest with you. Uh, can't you do all those things without using the word travesty? Particularly <laughs> given the year that Aaron Rodgers had, can't you don't have to use, I think Tom Brady is the clear MVP. That's all he has to say. Yards, touchdowns, the way he helped me keep things together, I think he's the clear MVP. Yes, do some other guys have good cases, decent cases, but Tom Brady and what he meant to this football team, this guy should be the MVP. Once you throw in the word travesty, that's a shot at Aaron Rodgers. It might, well, wait a minute, though. Don't you want to be emphatic? If you are acting as the campaign manager for anybody or anything, you want to use strong words that stand out. To me, if Bruce Arians would have said, well, Tom Brady, God, I think it'd be kind of unfortunate or not very good if he didn't win NBA. Well, that has no meaning. Then you're not really stating a case. Uh, what Bruce Arians is saying, my guy, no doubt about it, He's the MVP, he's the greatest of all time, and he was the best this season. I, the word travesty, unless he specifically said it would be a travesty if that immunized guy in Green Bay won it, then I'd be like, whoa, wait, wait, that's Andrew Gallardo, a little blow there. Let's lay back on that. He's just saying, hey, I support my guy. Yeah, he doesn't have them type of testicles to say what you just suggested. <laughs> so he went the passive-aggressive route and took a shot at Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, and he's probably the most beloved and most hated guy, right? I guess Brady's still going to be the most beloved. But there's people who he's built. He's winning new fans like me, yeah. and he seems to be irritating old fans like uh, Bruce Arians and 
What's what's the guy Hub Arkush that said he's not going to vote for him for MVP? Yeah, and see that 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 to me those type statements from Arians just fuel guys like this Hub Arkush and these other woke people in the media. They're going to try. You know, I kind of hope Aaron Rodgers doesn't win it, so I can do an entire show about what a travesty it is that people let their little (laughs) personal COVID beliefs interfere in what was doing the right thing. All right, Steve, I'm going to let you go. Uh, go to youtube.com backslash Jason Whitlock. Uh, join the Fearless Army. Hit that subscribe. Hit the likes button. Uh, if you're on Apple or anywhere else, give me that five-star review. Write a little review. I read them all. Uh, but before we get out of here on this segment and get to some Tennessee Harmony, I want to tell you about our friends over at Sweatblock. Sweatblock have been instrumental in helping me overcome my sweat problems when I'm delivering my blazing fire starters right here on the show. I used to get a little moist, a little sweaty, but thanks to sweat block, not anymore. Now I never have to worry about having unsightly sweat stains on my clothes. Sweat block is stronger and more effective than most clinical antiperspirants. And here's the beauty of it. It's so simple. Use it in the morning before you start your day and you are good to go. No need to worry about sweat all day. Guaranteed. Sweat block is a complete game changer and you need to get it right now. If you or someone you love is dealing with this, you have to check out sweatblock.com. Get it today for 20% off at sweatblock.com with the promo code fearless. That's sweatblock.com with the promo code fearless. All right, we'll get into some Tennessee harmony with Pastor Anthony Walker. All right, welcome back. Uh, time for my favorite segment of the week, a little Tennessee Harmony. Uh, Pastor Bobby has run out on us again. He's out of the country, I believe. Uh, he'll be back with us next week. But as always, the very reliable and eloquent uh, Pastor Anthony Walker is here with us. Uh, Pastor Walker, if you could bless our conversation and then we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for this day. As always, Father, we're thankful for the blessings that you've given us, the opportunities you've given us to do good and to be good in this world. Father, we pray uh, that all that we say and do is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, So yesterday on the show, I had a conversation with Shamika Michelle, and we were talking about the rapper Jim Jones and he was doing an interview uh, where he talked about his mother teaching him to uh, French kiss. And I think we all can recognize uh, that this is inappropriate, but I just want to put the conversation in a bit more of a biblical perspective on what we can do to combat it and, and give young mothers an opportunity to perhaps hear the words from Pastor Walker and or myself and, and get a little guidance from a biblical perspective on how you should actually be if you're caught in a situation like his mom apparently was single mother raising a child. She was a child herself. But anyway, let's play the clip first from yesterday from me and Shamika, and then uh, we'll get Pastor Walker's take. What did your mom tell you about sex when you were young? Told me everything about sex. Like what? My first condoms, shit like that. My mom told me how to kiss when I was younger. What did she tell you to do? <laughs> she told me how to tongue kiss when I was younger. Like, like what's the instructions? It wasn't no instructions. She showed me with her mouth. Like she- She kissed she, you? 
It's my mother. No, I'm just asking. Okay. My parents never, my parents kissed me, barely kissed me on the cheek. No, so my mom I just used, stopped she kissing showed my son me how to, She showed me her tongue kiss when I was younger. Remember my mom's was 17. She's a baby. Look at all the babies that's yeah. having babies now. Sure. And, act, and look how they act with their babies. It's like we they like have a little besties. sister or a little brother yeah, you more than they had. Yo, did you think, did you think tongue kissing was nasty at first? Because the first time somebody tried to tongue kiss me, I thought it was so disgusting. Um, the first time I tongue kissed a girl, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, the you spit My mom's, it didn't phase me. The first time I tongue kissed a girl, I was blown, I was so pissed off. I didn't know what the f*** was going on. <laughs> this is why, Anthony, I always say, like, it's so hard for parents. It's harder for parents today than I believe when I was raised 30, 40 years ago. It's just much, much harder for parents because these celebrities have these platforms where they can talk directly to your kids 24 hours a day. From their, The kids have their cell phones, they have their laptops, they have their own TVs in their room. And so here's a celebrity appears to be holding a marijuana cigarette of some kind, lighter in the other hand, he's drunk and or high and sharing uh, with this audience how he was raised by his mother inappropriately. Uh, but your thoughts? I, it, it took me aback just to hear it. Um, I know from his clip as he describes her, he says she was a baby. And, you know, one of the things that my mom and my grandmothers, as they were raising me coming up, um, is that they often mentioned that when you become a parent, everything else goes aside. And that's just a reality. When you become a mother, a father, everything else goes aside. Not meaning that we don't set aside our religion or our values, but my own aspirations for what I want to do and how I want to do it. This child is priority now. I have to make sure that I'm discipling them, teaching them the ways of Christ, preparing them for life without me, that they may be independent. So when a child comes along and you say, well, what if what if you're, you know, 24 years old, you're still young, you're still, you know, want to explore your life, et cetera. That's a sacrifice. What if you're 17 at 17? You're still developing your wisdom, your mind, your judgment still hasn't gotten there. But this child that has come on the scene, they deserve a mom and a dad that loves them. They deserve a right situation to be brought up in, even with the issues going on. So as I hear him talk about her being a baby, I know, OK, yeah, that, that's going to be tough for a 17 year old. However, the standard is still high. You're somebody's mom now. As I reflected, I think, on last week's show with myself being you know, a father and having my father pass you know, when I was two years old, as I'm about to become a father, I'm partly afraid of this because man, I don't know if I have everything that I need to give my son, especially with the deficit that I did not have. That aside, I'm somebody's dad. I've got to respond. So and then the other part of it that kind of hit me with that is there's some place in her mind, his mom, that she feels that this is an essential life lesson that I need to pass on to my son. Whatever life did to her and put her in that situation, that's a problem. I got one more. And for him 
and I think Shamika kind of mentioned this, to seemingly express this as a norm, as this is okay. Like when everybody else on the set says, wait, your mom kissed you? And he says, hey, that's, that's my mother. As if to say, this is okay. This is dysfunctional. This is inappropriate behavior that's not normal and needs to be acknowledged as such. Parents are not perfect, okay? Uh, one of the things that parents go through is this thing called on-the-job training. God is still working some stuff out in us as we're trying to raise our kids, and as Proverbs would let us know, to train up a child in the way that he or she should go. So God is still dealing with me as I'm dealing with my kids, but at a point, I need to be able to look back, even with my own mom. She looks back, and sometimes now she says, man, I, I failed you in this area. That wasn't right. I shouldn't have done. I shouldn't have put this on you. Kids TV shows, TV shows are rated uh, TVG or TVV7 or TVPG or AS, you know, adult situations. Adult situations, kids' minds are not able to process these adult situations. So to put that on them, uh, it, it, it just made me shake my head, man. One of the things I thought about and why I wanted to have the conversation with you is I, I keep going back to, okay, what are the solutions? Because we're, you know, the world has always been a fallen place, but it feels like, ooh, we keep falling farther. <laughs> and, and so, and that's why I always go to, well, the church has to stand in the gap. Mm -hmm. Our school systems are failing us. Mm -hmm. How can we teach in the church? Mm -hmm. How can we, again, from, uh, you know, when I, when I think about mistakes that my mother made, excellent mother, but obviously as it relates to diet, she planted some seeds in, in me and my brother mm -hmm. that weren't right. And so I'm like thinking the church has to be the virtual everything for a community. And so I was, I'm watching this yesterday, I'm like on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, some days of the week, churches have to offer classes on being a parent mm -hmm. because there's nobody else. Some of these, this young girl clearly didn't have a parent to teach her how to be a parent. Mm -hmm. and, and so the church has to be that hub, that base of knowledge to teach these people that don't know what the proper role for parenting is. The church is going to have to stand in the gap there. So in the book of Judges, um, this was a time uh, that Israel was in some transition in their relationship with God. Um, there's a line in the book of Judges that every time you read it, the story takes a turn for the worse. And that line is, and I think they have it up on the screen, in those days there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. It's in Judges 17, Judges 18, Judges 19, Judges 21. And every time you read it, you think the story can't get much worse than this. Uh, chapter 19, for example, details a story almost as illicit as Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we remember Sodom and Gomorrah uh, being this place of, of sexual perversion and promiscuity, homosexuality, all this gone rampant and God destroys them. Well, in Judges chapter 19, it starts off by saying in those days there was no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
and almost the exact same story. Guy comes and stays the night over another person's house. And in the middle of the night, people are banging on the door. Bring out the man. You know, we want to sleep with him. And it's like, well, let me give you my daughter. No, we don't want her. We want him. That kind of craziness. But it happened because there was no king. And here, contextually, the king represented God's leadership for the people. But if there's no king, then there isn't really a connection with God. So if there's no connection with God, people generally trend to I'll do the best I can. It's what seems to fit, you know, whatever I guess I need to do, I'll do. That's how things like and I think we talked about on the earlier episode. That's how things like street smarts come into play. You know, I want to teach you to be street smart because in these streets, man, you know, folk will do this is better. I think I'm giving you lessons that will help you survive. But those lessons don't bring you any closer to God. They just help you to meander life. So in the streets in the streets. <laughs> right. And that, that's about as far as you can get with right. that kind of. And so with her and I'm thinking about the parent in some space. And I'm 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 going off the general here. I, I doubt that that mothers in general. I don't want to hurt my child. She's not trying to hurt him. She actually thinks she's doing something well. But in our culture that is more and more devolving into sexuality being our identity, she feels the need. I've got to prepare him in this space. And, and, and that's where. So you ask about solutions. Uh, one that I, I really want to stress here, and, and I'll tell you, I, man, I, I, I tossed on this one because just hearing the story is like, wow, how can we get there? And I think back to the single parents, okay? With, with parents like my wife and I are trying to be to our kids, I understand that God made me different from a woman. She understands God made her different from a man. And we're raising a son and a daughter. There's a spot that she can only go to, morality, things of that nature. Manhood, she can't touch it. That's not to say she's inadequate as a person. She's as God designed her, but she recognizes I can't take you any further than this. So there's some situations. Hey, you need to go talk to your daddy or, hey, Anthony, you know, we're, he's, he's getting a little older. We need to deal with these things because she can't take him any further. The same thing with a, a single father and raising a daughter. At some point, he can only take her so far before. I, I don't know, because I don't go through my experience in life as a woman. I don't know what that lens looks like through life. So biblically, when we understand how discipling takes place, Paul gives us an example uh, uh, in advising his young mentee in Titus. In Titus chapter two, uh, he references this. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, patience. The older women, likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Then when we drop down to verse 11, he says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. So men need to disciple and mentor other men. Women need to disciple, mentor other women. This is and, and this is just a general statement for those single parents. You know, my mom was a single parent for a while. She made it her business, one of trying to get me connected with God, which is what we're supposed to do as parents. I need to get you connected with God. But then secondly, she did all she could to make sure that I had some mentors, my uncles, uh, my minister at the time, other godly men that could help me until she remarried, that could help me in this area to develop as a young man. So that's just the general as it relates to, you know, how do we teach kids about, you know, relationships and things like that? Um, Solomon in the book of Proverbs and the book of Proverbs is written as a father talking to a son or as a mentor talking to a young mentee, walking him through uh, all aspects of life. In general, Proverbs chapter five through Proverbs chapter seven, he details some things that deals with relationships, that deals with sexuality. He talks about how there may be some women out there look good, sound good, attractive, but no, they're they're not about godly living. And so, son, you need to watch out about that. You need to watch how you get into relationships. If you're fornicating, what that can do and how that can lead you astray from what God has designed for you. So those are some good chapters uh, for parents to read. But then the other thing that I would say for parents, as we recognize what God has designed for marriage, my kids are learning just by watching mom and dad, how we function together as husband and wife. They learn some things about kissing. They're still at that age. My kids are young. They're still at that age where kissing just in general is now kind of gross. Like, oh, that's that's. Cr-. But if they see mom and dad kiss. They learn just by observing us. OK, now that's appropriate for them, but that's not appropriate for us. Like, that's not nah, that's that's kind of gross. Imagine, as you saw the other day, a mom bringing her son, whatever young age. He says, when I'm younger, I'm, I can't find an age where this is appropriate at all. But imagine now breaking that barrier. And OK, now we're going to teach you about this. Now, what's going through his mind? If he's after puberty, there's some hormonal, psychological things that are going on. Even for her as a mom teaching, there's some emotional pieces that are taking place here. And we're convoluting all of that under the guise of, well, I'm trying to teach him the ropes. Uh, That's that's troubling. It's it's you made the point early on about how. So much of our identity is based in sexuality. Yes. And so I'm looking at a mother that could be, and it could be like a pie chart. 20% of her motivation may be this, another 30% may be this. Mm -hmm. So there's a part of me that's like, is she fulfilling her unresolved issues with the father through this son who probably looks like the dad? Is she like a lot of dads 
overly, man, I want to make sure my son's not gay. And so you'll hear about a lot of dads that misguided, like, oh, I'm going to go get my 14, 15-year-old son his first sexual experience, mm -hmm. and I'm going to participate in that, and we're going to make it happen. And, and she could be trying to do what she can to make sure that her son is heterosexual and likes women. And <clears throat> it, it, there's so much emphasis on our sexual identity and virtually no interest in our Christian identity. Right. And, and again, th this is how the whole country and the world has gotten off course with this obsession about our sexual identity. And, and, and even let's, and I know that's not what we're doing with Tennessee Harmony, but even if we were to remove the religious aspects of it, there seems to be no focus on just morality. Right. And, and like, let's remove religion, but just like, l let me try to get my kids along a moral co uh, course. There's almost no interest in that. It, it, and and I, I look at pop culture and how we, anything that makes us money, mm -hmm. that's, and that's how, again, you talk about, there's an absence of kings. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of false kings yes. and false gods. Yes. And, and we celebrate people like a lot of the rappers that are basically out rapping and preaching some of the most satanic stuff possible. But because they got a lot of money, they know the way. And there are leaders and our spokesmen. It just, the, and again, I just go back to the church, we have a, uh, people are, are out in the desert starving for water. Yes. And God has provided Christians in the church an endless supply of water found in that Bible. Mm -hmm. And we got to open it up seven days a week. Yes. Come get this water. Yes. <laughs> and it, it can't just be on Sunday to come feel good. Come get this water. We're going to teach you how to eat. <laughs> yeah. We're going to teach you how to exercise. We're going to teach you how to raise your kids. It, we got to make the church a every day, a 24. We got to make a 7-Eleven. So you're coming. You're coming <laughs> in my you're in my wheelhouse now. So in John chapter four, this is right where you're talking. OK, Jesus meets up with a woman who um, she has five husbands. And the implication there is, OK, at some point in her life, OK, we just kind of keep shifting from this guy to this guy to this guy to this guy. And the way that we find out about that is that she's at the well looking for water. She's thirsty uh, in a literal sense here, but she's looking for water. But the weird part about it, she's there at noon. OK, if you know anything about water and wells and condensation, the water is at its lowest spot when the sun is at its highest. So people usually would go to the well in the morning or in the evening. Well, that's a community event, right? Everybody in town comes to the well. Hey, how you doing? Hey, what's going on, sis? Hey, what's been going on? But for some reason, this one woman out of the whole town goes at an odd time of day, as we find out why, she didn't want everybody in her business. She didn't want anybody, because she's the lady that, oh, she's been married, you know, and I think somebody she's with, that ain't her husband either. So when Jesus ministers to her, he says, I've got some water for you that you won't have to come to this well again. 
Meaning you, you this water that you're drinking, you got to come every time. I've got some water that will in you spring up a fountain. It will take care of your thirst. Now he's speaking to what's really going on with her. So as you relate, you know what you're talking about, that the world is the world is thirsty. It's it's thirsty for a lot of things. But when we take Jesus out of it, when we take God out of it, we go back to just being our base selves, which is responding to our own cravings. When I'm hungry, I'll eat. Well, you can't eat everything you want. Yeah, but I'm hungry. So I want it. I want to have it. Oh, she looks good. I want her. I just want to have it. Wait, hold on. Stop. God teaches us how to deal with this. God teaches us how he designed us to be. You take God out of it. That's all you get. And then, as you even pointed out, keep protracting this thing further. We like prominence. We like there's a part of us that wants to be recognized, wants to be seen, wants to be adored, wants to be accepted by the masses. So, you know, you're uh, uh, a Scarface reference. You know, we get money, we get power, we get prestige. Right. So now we equate that to what life is all about. So if I whatever I can do to get more money, I get more prestige. I get more people to look at me. Great. And then we attach that with everything else we want. What do they say? Sex sells. So now all of that goes. And what we've done, we've left God out of the place. So so you're right in that we got to go back to God. You're right in that the church has to be that. Now, I'll be frank. The church sometimes in our response Sometimes we can be uh, overly dogmatic. Sometimes we can be so much truth with no grace to where we're just, hey, this, that and the other. And in that people don't feel the love of God. Okay, so at times, you know, people experience church hurt and that church hurt. It stings. It hurts. And, And just like people do in relationships. You date this person, you date this person, you date this person. You say, I'm no longer going to date athletes. I'm no longer going to date, you know, white people. I'm no longer going to date men. I'm no longer going to date women because that's how we operate. So sometimes people respond to God with, I'm not going to no longer go to church because every church I went to, this situation happens. When we go looking for God, the church is perfect. The people in the church are not perfect. Jesus suffered, bled and died on the cross for the church. He loves this entity that he uh, instituted. He loves it. And we should as well. There are some churches that have hurt folk. And man, I, I don't need to be there. I need to search for something that identifies with what the scriptures teach. Now, that ought to be our angle as you, it relates to churches. We do need to have much more of an offering than a Sunday morning experience. But that's sometimes even an issue in churches that we sometimes go back to. We want to make Sunday morning the biggest and and baddest that we can do. Same thing that happened in John chapter four. When Jesus talks to this woman who had five husbands and the man she was with was not her husband. The one thing she knew, she said, well, this is the place where you ought to worship. She knew where worship was supposed to take place, but she didn't know how to live her life throughout the week. And, and she even knew that Jesus was coming. She said, I know one day the Messiah is coming, but that hasn't changed your life. She's focused her life so much on a temple experience that she left Monday through Saturday out of her life. 
So churches, we do have to have much more than a Sunday morning experience, which is where discipleship comes in. Bible classes, community outreach, all of that needs to take place so that now this is a full, a a, a well-rounded institution, which is how God designed it to address the ailments of the world. You want to know how to love? Look at my people. You want to know what marriage ought to look like? Look at my people. You want to know what marriage ought to be? Look at my people. You want to know what work ethic looks like? Do you want to know what diligence looks like? Look at my people. So. I heard you make the point about the church, sometimes too dogmatic, Mm -hmm. no grace. Mm -hmm. And then so what I and this is just Jason Whitlock, I'm not saying this. I don't know this to be true, but what I view as grace, what I what I is if I can get resources or the things I need to be uh, satisfied, happy, prosperous in this life, if I can get that through my relationship with the church, that's the grace I'm looking for. And so it's I look at Shamika Mm -hmm. yesterday. I brought up to her and talking to her. I was like, uh, you know, I know you had a bad experience with the church and she's got some. And so but the solution is one to say to Shamika, hey, look, stay with that church and prove it. It's, it the church is only as good as the people in the church. Mm-hmm. But also on the other side, I would say to the church, people wouldn't leave the church over one or two bad experiences. Maybe that because. I think and my memory, I talk to Shamika kind of regularly. Shamika is really attractive and church people, church guys have been undisciplined mm-hmm. in their engagement with her. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I think about, though, is if that church on Tuesdays was where she learned how to manage her finances and invest her finances and to grow her wealth and improve her family. She's going to be less likely to walk away from that church because, oh, okay, I, the deacon here has been mm-hmm. rude to me or, you know, too aggressive, blah, blah, blah. But on Tuesdays, I get this. And on Wednesdays, they got this class about being a parent. And on Thursdays, we actually have a social event where we play bingo or who, who knows what. But there's all these other extra benefits going on at the church. And it's not just as we we keep talking about a Sunday deal and you go there feeling good, but a bunch of your other needs. And and we are as black people and then poor people, we're very needy and we need to be taught. And the world isn't teaching us anything right now other than French kiss your mama and do these drugs and blah, 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 because even again, the church should be like having conversations and providing education like, hey, we got an obesity problem that's being complicated by COVID. And so I go to the church for these exercise classes and these tips on changing my diet. If we can make the church again, when, when you think of any problem as a human being, you should be like, well, let me go consult this book. <laughs> and, yeah. and there's some experts in this book at this yes, church. Sir. Every problem. Yes. The solution is in there. Yes. 
And we and that's you can't just teach those solutions on Sunday. That's not a two hour. No. Uh, college isn't a two hour once a week thing. No. High school isn't. Nothing that matters is. It should be in, in every aspect of our life. I, I remember one time Bobby and I were on, we were talking about technology to the point that I agree with. I think that God, his way, his purpose, his teachings should surround us in every aspect of life. In my social media feed, I need to see more God. In my uh, interactions with the community, I need to see more God. I need to run around seeing God. And that's, you know, for, for our congregation, for example, what we try to do is to emulate that even within our community. Our, uh, you know, our church has a lot of business owners. They are exuding Christ in their businesses. Um, you know, we've got a lot of teachers. We've adopted a couple of schools. So there are kids in the community that see me not just in a Sunday morning aspect, but they see me throughout the week. I speak at a lot of schools uh, throughout the year, for example, in our community. But we're taking this Christian community and we're implementing that into the actual community parameters that we live in so that it becomes about what God is doing for us. I'm not teaching you this about finances just because I want you to be rich. No, I want you to be well-rounded so that you're not dependent upon, you know, your creditors and all this kind of stuff, slave to the lender. Wrong man. You know what I mean? Right, right. I'm not on that kind of stuff. I'm actually back to God. And if I'm no longer using these payday, you know, loan kind of people, if I can better manage my money, I can be a better steward of what God has given me and better support ministry. If I am dealing with all of these issues that are unresolved in my life, you know, I've been abused. I've been hurt. I've had these relationships. I learned how to be right with God. Then I could be right with somebody else. You know, all of that stuff goes back to him. But again, we see you talk about that. I grew up, you know, one of the areas I was talking to uh, someone about here recently, I grew up in, in parts of East Nashville here. And it was not uncommon for me to hear some of my friends who had just started work talking about how they had to give, you know, half their check to their mom to pay bills. Could you imagine a kid still developing now with the adult responsibility of paying bills and the parents say, hey, you know, bring me your check. I need this for this. Wait, that's your responsibility. They need to focus on being a kid and developing. But when we put that and we mix all of that stuff up, especially without God, we can't hope for a good result. Uh, Anthony, great job as always. Uh, we got more from Anthony. He's got a Bible story that we're going to air next. Uh, and then that's going to be it and all for us. Uh, so we'll hear from Anthony and his Bible story. Then you'll hear tomorrow. And then you'll see me tomorrow. Hello, I'm Anthony. And here's another Bible story. There's another narrative. In the beginning, Satan tied a little knot in God's command to Adam and Eve. In its deception has led the world down a downward path. God had said if they ate from the forbidden tree, they would die. Satan said they would not surely die. A direct refutation of God's word. Similarly, I've seen another direct assault on the word of God, namely the word love. 
In 1 John 4 and 16, the Bible says, and we've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. The entire chapter of 1 John 4, as well as other scriptures, details the characteristics of love as outlined by God. It is pure, it is just, it is perfect. It does not pervert what God has instructed. God is the embodiment of his perfect love. John's earlier writing, the familiar John 3.16, gives us the quintessential statement on the salvific power of God's love. Love is not an experience, although one can experience love. Love is not just a feeling, although one can feel love. Love is a choice. It is a choice to adhere to the character of God towards others. But within the last couple of decades, we've heard a new phrase, love is love. It sounds catchy. It may even sound as if it makes sense. But in my view, it is a direct assault on God's design. It implies that love is just out there to be had, that no one can control love. They would even say, you can't help who you love. The phrase in its well-sounding, comforting, palatable method bothered me because I saw the protraction of what was to come. With the foundation laid of love is love, it could therefore be used to undergird one's own lust and redefine one's lust as love. If I can't control my urges toward a married coworker, I continue to pursue because love is love. She can't help it, I can't help it, love is love. Both our marriages are torn apart, families ripped apart, but no one could blame us because love is love. Those who have same-sex temptations or illicit thoughts are no longer encouraged to pray and seek God on the matter because love is love. You can't help who you love. Then it all it takes is misunderstanding and misquoting of God's word to add fuel to the fire. Because now instead of investigating what God calls and how God defines love, the enemy takes the definition he wants, then applies God's word as a support for his evil plan. He did this in the beginning. He quotes scripture, but with his twist. So now people feel like their own lust has God's approval. They'll say, even the Bible says God is love. No, God is not in any illicit, perverted, lust-filled relationship that we call love. Did you see that deception? Satan puts his definition out there, then matches it with God's word. But that's just phase one. Phase two is changing identity. The enemy begins to suggest that gender and identity are merely psychological constructs you know, how God designed us is not just by his design, but we're rather a collection of thoughts and feelings and hormones. Imagine mixing in illicit thoughts and imaginations with the empowerment of all you have to do is identify with it. 
Then you mix that with the rare, extremely rare cases in which people are born with both sets of genitalia or underdeveloped genitalia or hormone imbalance. Now the scientists can suggest that we are just a collection of psychology and hormones. Gender and identity are now whatever we think it is. This too is an assault on God's word and God's design. God tells the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Read it carefully. God is speaking in the present tense, but he talks about Jeremiah's beginning and life as if it's past tense. Before you were born, I knew you. He says, I had ordained you a prophet while he was still developing in the womb. Only a creator could make such a bold statement. Later in Jeremiah chapter 18, God uses a unique analogy. The context is God is trying to mold Israel to be his special people. So he uses the analogy of a potter molding pottery on a wheel. Potters don't start making a piece and then later decide what it's going to be. Form, function, and design are all considered beforehand. So if I'm making a vase for seed storage, I have to already have enough clay for the height of the vase. And as it's on the wheel, I'm making it into the form I've already decided for its purpose. God makes us on purpose, with purpose, for purpose. When he adds the male plumbing, he has purpose in mind. Additionally, the clay does not inform the potter of what it wants to be. The potter molds the clay according to his purpose. When the enemy now changes how we identify ourselves, then the gates are open. Identity can be static or fluid. It can change any way the wind blows. I then could supplant my thoughts with the curiosity. Is this just a thought or is this my identity? I can go to the doctor, get some testosterone, get breast removed. Now, as I think I am. Initially, the identity piece had to be matched with the outer appearance, but now it's all in what I tell you. So I, beard and all, can walk into the women's bathroom and say, I identify as a woman. And that identity could be as fluid as 30 minutes ago. And what can anyone say to me? Now that's phase two. Phase three is partially here, but I fear is on the way in full force. Step one, love is love, thus I can't help who I love. But then step two goes on to changing identity. Step three, well, imagine this. Imagine a 40-year-old man gets caught with a 10-year-old boy, and he says, well, I identify as a nine-year-old girl. What can anyone say to him? Love is love. I can't help who I love. My identity, I can change by what I think. We're in a sad state of affairs. 
Even male athletes can now turn to compete in female sports. And they're winning at record pace. Does that make you less of a man or more of a woman? I don't know, but I'm on guard. And I pray that you are too. And that's another Bible story. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation, we all just want to have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving all the